On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Stephen Wilson's Insurgentes and Grace for Drowning. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Paul Zotter as we start to consider the Stephen Wilson solo catalog. This episode covering the first two albums, Insurgentes and Grace for Drowning. All right, Paul, so uh, welcome to uh, this Palaver for Two, where we start to dig into the Stephen Wilson solo catalog. I obtained these two albums, as well as The Raven, prior to my three-week sojourn into Europe, because I wanted to be able to listen to these while I was doing all of the things that I was doing. And so it's it's actually kind of cool, because these two albums was something that I was listening to while I was doing my Parallels pilgrimage down to mm. Vevey, Switzerland. So that was kind of neat. I didn't know these albums beforehand. The only albums from Stephen Wilson that I knew were Hand Cannot Erase and To the Bones. So these three um, were entirely new to me. And when I started listening, now, again, I'm I'm in the middle of, of Europe and I'm out of my normal environs and, you know, connectivity was a bit of an issue. So I, I, I really just, I had these on my phone and I was listening and I, I, I wasn't, really paying attention but immediately the genetic connection to certainly the first two blackfield albums seemed obvious to me certainly for for these first two but they seemed a little underformed perhaps a little you know almost like a a sketch as opposed to a finished piece and so i not knowing what the the time connection was, I originally had the idea that these came before the Blackfield albums and the and the Blackfield albums sort of grew from the things that Stephen was doing here. So I was quite surprised when I, I finally, you know, started doing my research and found out that these albums were significantly later than the Blackfield albums. I I just was not expecting that at all. It was it was quite the surprise. Well, one of the fun things about talking about Stephen Wilson on the Palaver, every time we sit down to talk, I learn new things. And I'm with you. I had no idea that the Blackfield albums came so far before any of his solo albums. And here's something else that's funny. Because of the way that these albums are on Spotify, I actually thought Insurgentes was the the second solo album. Oh, really? I did not not realize that that was the original solo album. I thought Grace for Drowning was the original solo album, which is just funny because when I listen to that album, right or wrong, I just find it quite experimental in my in my mind when I listen. Like I said, I, I was I was as surprised as you were when I figured that out. But, you know, again, that's that's part of the fun of doing, you know, what we do here with the palaver is we do get to so to learn some things that we didn't know before. And, 
you know, for me personally, I find sort of the effort to create this context and, and understand the relationships um, in a lot of ways enhances my enjoyment of these. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I find particularly in situations like this that, you know, when I'm about to talk about an album or two that I don't really have much to say about, I listen to you or some of the other fellas talk about their experiences, and I always end up wanting to go back and listen to them and and say, well, I probably missed something here and go back to listen to it. So no pressure or anything, oh, Joe. Yeah, but. no, that's, that's, that's great. I don't know how much, uh, how much insight you're going to get from, from me either, because I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you, Paul, while I like these because of my perceived DNA connection between them and, and the Blackfield albums, the more I got into the Raven that refused to sing, the more distracted I became from these two albums. Yeah. <laughs> As I was sharing with you before we started, I went to see Hand Cannot Erase show. It was just an amazing experience. And it was my first experience really to Stephen Wilson's solo stuff. So you know, I bought the CD there at the show. A couple weeks later, I bought the Raven. And I just spent the whole summer listening to those two albums. And as you well know, just love them. So then when I went to backtrack to these, I just really couldn't make space for those other two albums. You know, sometimes you get that, you know, if you go in, if you hop in somewhere and you try to go back and sometimes it's not always what you were expecting and, and it can be difficult to make sense of it but let's let's maybe just go over the particulars of these two albums yeah. and then we can just sort of go into it as we mentioned insurgentes is the first stephen wilson solo album was released on uh, november 2008 produced by stephen wilson on the labels headphone dust tone float and or k-scope not quite sure what the relationship uh, there is the band lineup is Stephen Wilson, and on the wikis he's credited with, um, and I, I sort of truncated this, vocals, guitars, pianos, keyboards, synthesizers, harmonium, mellotron, bass, percussion, programming, ambient noise, and loops. <laughs> <laughs> he's joined by a... a ambient a, noise. Ambient That's... noise. He is huh. he's joined by a host of characters, including Gavin Harrison, who plays drums on a handful of tracks, prog rock god Tony Levin plays bass on two songs, Mike Outram plays electric guitar on two. Dirk Series plays guitar drones on two, whatever that is. Jordan Rudess plays piano mm -hmm. on three. Clodag Simmons, uh, I apologize if I have that name butchered, uh, vocals on one track. Sand Snowman plays acoustic and process acoustic guitars on two and recorders on another. Theo Travis plays the wah flute and clarinet, and Michio Yagi plays the 17-string bass koto. The track listing, and hopefully I can pronounce all of these properly, Harmony Corrine, Abandoner, Salvaging, Veneno para las Hadas, No Twilight Within the Courts of the Sun, Significant Other, Only Child, Twilight Coda, Get All You Deserve, and Insurgentes. Insurgentes is the title of the first full-length solo album released by British musician and record producer Stephen Wilson. Uh, 
known for being the founder and frontman of progressive rock band Porcupine Tree. The album was recorded all over the world in studios from Mexico City to Japan and Israel between January and August 2008, and released in November 2008 as a special deluxe multi-disc mail-order version, with retail release to follow in February 2009. According to Wilson himself, the album contained, quote, the most experimental song-based music he had made. The album is named after the Avenida de los Insurgentes, Insurgentes, the longest avenue in Mexico City, near which part of it was recorded. Grace for Drowning was released in September of 2011, also produced by Stephen Wilson, and released on the label K-Scope. Um, Stephen Wilson is again um, credited with a whole host of, of roles. He's joined by Jordan Rudess again, on plays piano on three tracks. Theo Travis plays saxophone and clarinet. Ben Castle plays clarinet. This is interesting. Nick Beggs plays the Chapman stick on, nice. on three tracks. Yeah. And yet Tony Levin plays the bass guitar on two. Now I meant to look up and maybe Paul, you can do some palaver research on the fly. If in fact, Nick Beggs happens to be one of the stick men. Oh, I will check that out. I don't know. He definitely is a badass on the stick because he's their current uh, bass player. I know Tony Levin tours with the stick men and I, I, I don't, remember who they are but i was just wondering you know if you've got someone here playing chapman stick and it's not tony levin it makes you wonder the track listing is grace for drowning sectarian deformed to form a star no part of me postcard raider prelude remainder the black dog belle du jour index track one raider two and like dust i have cleared from my eye Hmm. Um, I want to say there's actually more. Yes, there is. Um, there's also Home and Negative and Fluid Tap. My bad. Hmm. Okay. The Stickmen are Pat Mastellato, Tony Levin, and Michael Bernier, and later Marcus Reuter. Okay, so not Nick Beggs. Interesting. Not Nick Beggs, although he could definitely bring it if needed. He could fill in. Okay, so Grace for Drowning is the second solo studio album by Stephen Wilson, producer, songwriter, and frontman of Porcupine Tree. It was released by K-Scope on 26 September 2011. The album received a nomination at the 54th Annual Grammy Awards for Best Surround Sound Album. So we, we've talked already about, you know, maybe the experimental nature of these albums, as well as sort of where they, they show up in the in the timeline much later than we would have thought. And, you know, I guess it's given all that Steven had accomplished, it, it seems unusual that he would start this solo gig this late in the game after he had already been in, you know, any number of different bands and mm -hmm. different projects. But, you know, there's no accounting for genius, I guess. And this is where he wanted to go. For me, I, I've certainly sort of tried to keep, that sort of experimental nature of these two albums in its perspective as i've sort of listened to them and 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 tried to understand and appreciate them for what they are 
I kind of give Steven a little bit of rope on this one, maybe more so than I would have originally. What I find interesting, there is no small amount of Roger Waters in mm. Steven Wilson, but yet I find the more time I spend with these two albums, the less of that maybe I hear. I do think it's very much in The Raven, and I and it's definitely front and center in To the Bone, but it's it's less prevalent here, and I'm always sort of searching for what this reminds me of. What other group is he sort of mm. evoking here? And, and I don't do that to be dismissive of what he's trying to do, but that's just sort of naturally where these songs take me. It's, mm. it, it's very strange. Well, it's interesting because I am struck how I, I hear sounds and tones that I hear later on in the Raven and in Hand Cannot Erase and even into the Bone. They're almost like the seedlings of these things that are mature. And that's why I find both these albums to be more of the experimental nature. I feel like it's just this wide canvas of musical colors going on and it's very dynamic. It it goes in and out. But I hear these like colors that break through later on. And and really, it's it's the it's the very beginning of you know if Stephen Wilson does have a sound, and I, I feel like he does, it's the very beginning of it. So I, I I definitely appreciate where you're coming from because although rather than looking for other bands, I'm like finding threads that make it all the way through to his his latest works. And, and yeah, I think that is an excellent observation. Certainly, there does seem to very be a very clear arc from where he is now or where he is on these albums to where he winds up. And and it is sort of a natural evolution. It could very well be that while Stephen Wilson is undoubtedly prolific, he's always been part of a project with someone else or someone's else. And, you know, here for the first time, apparently, he had, you know, the control to sort of you know, explore what he wanted to explore and, and see, you know, how he would maybe do some things that maybe in the past, you know, his his collaborative partners would would handle or, or something. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and so he's he's drawing on his influences while he's figuring out who Stephen Wilson on his own is. And ultimately that, you know, pays off, if you will, certainly in 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 the later albums. What I didn't know about this was that apparently there was a, a movie made about this album. It's funny you should say that because I bought physical copies of Insurgentes and Raven and I ripped them into my phone before I left. So I've been listening off of my phone. Never really gave it enough thought. There was a whole lot of stuff to do before I left on that trip. And so it imagine my surprise when today I discovered there's a second disc in Insurgentes, which happens to be a DVD. And I haven't, <laughs> I haven't had a chance to watch oh. it yet. I'm like, son of a bitch. Well, one fun thing that awaits you is uh, various ways that Stephen Wilson tested to destroy iPods. What? Um, which was in some way, uh, I guess, his small way of protesting the MP3 format. And how he felt that was reducing the listening experience. And here's a fun quote. This is, of course, from Wikipedia, so I don't know. But it says, he says, 
I really wonder if people realize what shit they are listening to when they listen to an MP3. <laughs> Steven, I'm sorry I had to rip your albums into my iPhone for my trip, yeah. but uh, that's the way it is. There are at least 10 different elements that he used to try to destroy an iPod. So, sledgehammer, blowtorch, shotgun, and a wood chipper. You'll get to see the other six, I guess, when you uh, watch the watch the DVD. All right. I look forward to that. It would be fun to see that for sure. I think we've talked about, you know, Stephen Wilson is a very, you know, he's very English and in, in intellectual when he talks. And perhaps that comes across a bit as arrogance at times. It would be fun to see, you know, what he what he is like 10 years ago, blowtorching an iPod. Uh, stay tuned. And uh, maybe maybe we'll get back together and, and discuss that quickly. One of the other things that I did, you know, in preparation for this was I went and I figured I'd go to Stephen Wilson's webpage and see what he had to say about these. And it was fascinating when he talks about insurgentes and he he has a quote on on his webpage that says, and I'll paraphrase, it, it's something about, you know, everyone assumes that he listens only to 70s music, but a lot of the music that he sort of grew up on was 80s music. Mm. and And that's sort of what percolates through certainly insurgentes when you hear that and you go back and listen to the record it makes a whole lot of sense but he mentions bands like the uh, the cocteau twins um public image limited the cure joy division uh the 4ad label which had um you know all sorts of people including modern english and, and others on there so it's just interesting because I, mm. I i like i said my my brain had started sort of go there but i didn't know that's where i was going until i read that i was like oh, right that does make a lot lot of sense so if we talk about harmony kareen this song is very very blackfield like mm. um it's it's very haunting and beautiful i i really you know i think this is a, a sort of a great introduction it does have a lot of blackfield influence if mm. you if you liked blackfield you know however many years before this chances are this this song is going to sort of rope you in but it, i still stand by the fact that it it does sound like a precursor to to the blackfield album it, it's it's mm. odd the way that happens but there it is i love the chorus there's just something you know that that's sort of right about this you know this this haunting you know adjective really it's repeated throughout my notes a lot because that is you know, it's it's almost like a Halloween album the, the yeah. way it the way it plays. But again, when you go back to those inspirational artists and labels for this, it completely jives with that. He's reliving, you know, his angsty years. So, Abandoner is it's more Blackfield, but it's it's much more sparse, I think, than Harmony Kareen. And I don't know if this is on purpose and he's trying to sort of explore having this space in the music or he's still trying to figure out how to fill in the space. I'm not exactly sure. This sort of trend continues with salvaging, which seems much more like a musical sketch. And what's interesting, there is an album that I bought. Oh, it was either my freshman or sophomore year at Delaware. It's by a band called Loop. And hmm. I remember Loop. Yeah. So this salvaging reminds me of Loop. Now, I haven't pulled the CD out to put it in, but 
that's exactly what I think of when I listen to this particular track. It, it has that sort of, I'll call it industrial ambient aspect to it. The only problem with it is the end is too long, and I think that is a sin that Stephen commits a couple of times on both of these albums. Sometimes if you don't have an outside producer to tell you, hey, 30 seconds is probably better than two minutes worth of whatever this is. Right. Yeah. The ending is almost half the song, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. He really does seem to be playing around with song structures as well. In that regard, it, it is surprisingly experimental for someone who's as accomplished at this point as Stephen Wilson is. But, you know, maybe he's unfettered and, and has the ability to say, well, you know, I've always wanted to do something like this. Let's, you know, right. no, yeah. one's, no one's here to stop me. And you have to, in a way, just admire that, right? The next track is going to highlight, you know, an interesting aspect of, of these albums. So, Veneno para las hadas, which I looked it up because I'm like, this has to mean something. And in fact, it translates to poison for the fairies. Hmm. And... I don't know if this is a direct inspiration, but there was a 1984 Mexican horror film by this name that had to do with a couple of little girls doing witchcraft and, you know, all the hijinks that ensue from that. But it it points out the fact that in certainly in these albums, I could not tell you with any certainty at all what the meaning behind any of these songs is. I don't know what the lyrics mean. I don't know what he's trying to tell me. It just hasn't percolated through my brain yet. Um, mm. That's not to say that it won't, but it just hasn't yet. And I just find that to be interesting, you know, because we, we've had this conversation certainly in regards to yes. And, you know, with, with John Anderson, it's a good thing when you don't know what he's singing about. You know, contrast that with someone like Sting, where you always know what he's singing about, you know? Yes. According to the wikis, it was named after that Mexican horror film. You know, I got to give it to you, Joe. I'm I'm, I'm really impressed with the, your digging into this because, you know, I look at these titles and I just am like, yeah, well, that go, that fits, you know? Like, <laughs> this song I could care less about. And uh, you know, there it is. Like the dude from uh, that sideways movie who just keeps drinking the wine he's like ah, i think it tastes good yeah you're right on the money it's the mexican horror film you know i'm encouraging at this point any of our listeners who really know and understand these records reach out and and clue us in on things that we should be paying attention to that maybe we're not at this point we need some help here yeah, otherwise we'll just be sitting in the car listening to The Raven That Refuses to Sing. <laughs> exactly. Which, you know, that's not so bad either. Um, <laughs> there's a fun game we're going to play when we get to The Raven, but uh, that's, oh, cool. that's, that's, not, uh, that's not here yet. So, so we move on then to No Twilight Within the Courts of the Sun. Now, the first thing that struck me about this after doing a little bit of research was, all right, this is, this is our first Tony Levin track. And, you know, who doesn't love a good Tony Levin, you know, moment in life? And when you start listening to this for the first two minutes or, or whatever the case may be, you're asking yourself, why the hell is Tony Levin playing on this? There's really no need. 
initially the song is built around this central riff and Stephen keeps sort of ramping things up and wrapping them around that central riff, but the central riff stays pretty much the same. And I don't know that much in the way that while he was utterly fantastic in Jeff Lynne's ELO, there was really no technical reason for our buddy Lee Pomeroy to have been there. Hmm. None of the songs required a player of Lee's skill. And, and that was what I was thinking of with this song with regards to Tony Levin. But then you get into sort of that right around the middle of the song, it, it the, the music sort of breaks down and the vocals come in. And now all of a sudden, Tony Levin has got room to do the things that Tony Levin does. And you're like, all right, yeah. So it's really, really cool because you, you get Tony, you know, Tony has the ability to start doing some of the magical things that he can do, which, you know, totally enjoyable, but it's also in a relatively musically quiet environment. So mm -hmm. there's no mistaking it. Very, very awesome. And then, of course, Stephen just brings everything. He brings that central riff and, and the kitchen sink back at you for the, the big finish, which is, you know, it's fun. There is also a quote from Stephen on, on one of the pages where he talks about, you know, when he listens to these albums, he always thinks about, you know, things he would have done differently. But he did say that No Twilight um, was a song that he thought turned into a good live, live track. Mm. And so he's pretty pleased with that. When this track gets really big, it reminds me of like the later Rush albums, things from like Clockwork Angels. Yeah, absolutely. Which, I can see that. Which, like you know, not not amongst my favorites of of that of that era. <laughs> so, while Tony Levin is awesome to me, it just seems nothing but experimental and disjointed and kind of all over the place. That moves us into significant other and only child, and and I group these together because these two songs, as I was sort of getting to know this record, these two songs gave me a little puzzle to work out. Hmm. They reminded me of something. I find certain similarities between these two, and I found my brain being tickled in the same way for, for both of them, perhaps in, in slightly different ways, but it was always, it was always pointing in the same direction, but I didn't uh, really understand what that direction was. I couldn't quite, you know, close the gap and, and figure out what it was making me think of when i saw the the bit about the inspiration for these records and everything else it pointed me enough in the direction i was able to close that gap the guitars in significant other and the vocals in in only child they remind me very much of the church i have marty wilson piper with a question mark here Nice. So uh, again, I don't know if that's the case, but that's that's what what triggered in my mind with these two tracks. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I never would have thought of that before till just now. <laughs> wow. Like I said, it was it was so funny because for weeks I've been like, what what is it? And then I read that that quote about you know the influences, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's what it is. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. So here we go back to Twilight Coda. And you want to talk about spooky. 
here's your spooky <laughs> right here, my friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of putting this on a loop on Halloween night when I'm handing out candy because the kids oh, wow. will be scared shitless. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but, you know, me being me, I actually love that kind of stuff. I think it's it's really, really great. And then you get into Get All You Deserve, which for me, this is the first of the the hint of Roger Waters. It's it's I, I don't necessarily know that it's a a full on Roger Waters obvious influence, but there's a little bit there. Of course it's mixed in with a bit of Depeche mode. And I think it's it's this this creepiness or this spookiness or this this haunted quality is is part of the Roger Waters manifestation. You know, Roger Waters is 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 the dark side to David Gilmore's light side, right? And obviously nothing illustrates that more than comfortably numb. And I've always been fascinated in both Roger Waters and David Gilmore Pink Floyd shows how they deal with the other's part hmm. um in there because you know that song perfectly sets up this sort of dichotomy between the 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 two both in terms of the the lyrical content the vocal delivery everything else and but I, but Stephen always brings that sort of darker side to this that that Roger has so yeah for me that's um that's sort of what what drives this and then in Sergentes given the creepy dark tension that get all you deserve creates and it builds a lot of tension by the time it's all said and done i find insurgentes the song to be just it's it's a beautiful release of all of that it, it's really hmm. in terms of tracking the album i think it's a brilliant way to sort of let you down easy from where he took you and and you know sort of allow you to to close the book if you will in a reasonably relaxed frame of mind i, I think it's uh, quite good i love it joe what i'm struck with is that i can hit play on any one of these tracks probably fast forward 30 40 50 seconds into the song and still there's nothing really happening in the song i just really fall short with patience it's kind of ashamed uh, to profess this uh, to uh, other, you know, progressive rock listeners, and and the whole, I feel like a lot of these final tracks are kind of like that. It's just, oh my gosh, I'm in track eight. Oh my gosh, I'm at the last track. It's thirty <laughs> seconds. Like, what's going to happen to this song? Like, how much is it going to build? What's going to happen? And it's not like I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm just like somebody, just get to the point here. So. You know, I definitely recognize that there's some really great stuff happening here. So I do think there are some some limitations to these albums, but at the same time, like I said, I I, I sort of came at this from the point of view of, of trying to sort of give Stephen the the leash and and trying to figure out maybe what he was was going for here, even if it's not necessarily something that you know grabs me right away. I don't know that you're ever going to be in a situation where, you know, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to, you know what? I really need to hear Insurgentes today. That's going to be, that's <laughs> going to make my, that's going to make my day. <laughs> but it, you know, it, it may be, it may be one of those things where it, it, you may find enough here to say, you know what? I'm going to have a Stephen Wilson day and I'm just going to listen to it mm. all and it's going to be great. You know, I will say as I've listened to this at work, it's it's fantastic to put this on the headphones 
and just hunker down and, you know, bang some shit out at work. So there is something going on here for sure. All right. So uh, you want to move on to Grace for Drowning then? Let's. Grace for Drowning, the song, if Insurgentes, this is, this, I find this to be hilarious. So the, the title track of the previous album is sort of the nice, easy glide in that, that you know, lets you mm-hmm. off, the, uh, off the crazy merry-go-round you've been on. Whereas the title track on the next album is the first track, and it just sort of sets the stage for where you're going to go. I just, I, I don't know if he did that on purpose, but I find it to be extraordinarily sort of amusing in the context here in the palaver where we're sort of trying to deconstruct these things. But it really does, you know, it, it, it sets the stage again for musically what you're going to hear. And it, it gives some indication that, you know, Stephen is, is exploring even more. Maybe the beginning of Insurgentes and, and certain aspects of Insurgentes, you know, borrowed a lot from his time in Blackfield and other things he had done. And and here he's he's moved maybe away from some of those influences a little bit. And so he's he's really just he's exploring in a whole new world and trying to figure out what he can do here. And and Grace for Drowning the Song, I think, gives you a little indication of that. Hmm. He moves into sectarian. This just really seals the deal with everything I was talking about. He's he's really he's sketching with with music at this point. He's got longer forms. He's letting the music breathe. There's there's a lot more space for things to kind of come in and, and out. He's trying to figure out, you know, how to to move from different textures and and he's throwing in all these different instruments. There's there's just a lot going on here. Yeah. I don't know that it's particularly well-formed. I don't know that it's particularly mature, but he's going for it. He's he's trying to figure out what he can do here. So from there, it, it's interesting. So you've got these, you know, these these two songs that are sort of exploring the box, so to speak. And then you get Deformed Form a Star which it starts with with just a beautiful piano intro and it, it, it leads into just a gorgeous song. I love the chorus and it's it's perhaps a little bit more expected in terms of its its structure and its delivery. And I think, you know, again, from the point of view of tracking an album, I think that's a, a brilliant choice to sort of give you something to, to ground yourself at this point um, so things don't get too far out of hand. This is definitely one I think that kind of stuck out to me. I stopped flipping flapjacks and I walked over to my phone to figure out what song this was. And I think for me it was it was that the the lush vocals in the middle. Yeah. Because I think that's something that we continue to hear later on. You know, it's funny, Joe. I never really stopped to think of it as it's constructed in the album because I don't think I've I've still ever had this these two albums like constructed in my mind, right? Um, they all just kind of feel like this experimental wave. But talking about it, yeah, you're right. You know, this is what track three. It's it's just really kind of you know, you know launches you into your way here. Yeah, and, and so there are a couple of interesting things that you said there, and we talked earlier about you know MP3 players and and iPods and the way that we usually interact with music because. You know, we've got a lot going on. We've got kids, we've got things to do, we've got work, we've got to take care of the house, whatever the case may be. The the time that we have to to literally 
sit down and spend two hours listening to music intently and looking at whatever the the cover art was and and reading liner mm. notes and and immersing ourselves in that we don't have that anymore so you've always got other things going on and you've got your your iPhone playing or whatever the case may be and and you know one of the keys of what's something good or remarkable is is it worth stopping what you're doing and going over and looking at whatever your mm. device is and figuring out what song is this? I need to remember this. Yes. You know? Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. So I, I find that to be to be interesting that you did that because that was that was my introduction to Blackfield. Um, oh. I was I was actually in a pool and I had I was I had just discovered uh, Pandora. Like swimming, a swimming pool? I was, I was swimming in a swimming pool. <laughs> I was house-sitting for a friend. I had just discovered uh, Pandora, and I had a Marillion channel going, and, you know, it just would find ah, whatever. Sure. And I'm, I'm in the pool, and the song Blackfield comes on. And I'm like, I need to go see what this is. So I climbed out of the pool and ran over dripping wet, you know, at the at danger of destroying my, my iPad because I had to know what that song was. And that started my love affair with Blackfield. Nice. Nice. I wonder if uh, submersing the iPod in water was one of the ways that Stephen Wilson tried to destroy I, the iPod. I, I'll let you know when I see. <laughs> okay. Now, the, the other thing that you said that, that sort of stuck with me, you know, when you talk about these two albums, there's a lot of music going on that you can't really latch on to. But every once in a while, something will pop up like this. You get an anchor point, maybe you build out from there a little bit. It reminded me forcibly of the experience that I had trying to understand Marillion's Brave. It, mm. it was very similar to that. Now, obviously, Brave is a masterpiece, and I still have to hear the Stephen Wilson remix, which I hear is just phenomenal. Oh, I still have to hear that, too. Wow. But um, the, the point was the same. There were There was a a decent amount of time where I would just sort of stumble through that album with no clue as to where I was or what was going on or anything else. Um, and it took me a while to sort of figure it out. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that grace for drowning is going to get there, but it, it just reminded me of that, that story. Of all the work that I know of, of Stephen Wilson, this is the one that was probably has the best chance of five years from now, you know, finally being like, oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. I think what's what's likely to happen is we're going to be able to fully appreciate the role of this album in the creation of Stephen Wilson, the solo artist. We then move on to No Part of Me. I find the drum pattern and the delayed piano in the intro to this just to be hot as all get out. <laughs> I just, you know, it's it's very Joe music esque, and and I think the the plaintive vocals that come in fit perfectly with that, and so I I like sort of the mood that he establishes here, and then he moves into that string section, which is like, I can't decide if it's too much or if it's almost too much, but it's it's somewhere in the neighborhood of being too much on one side or the other, and you know just when you're afraid that it's going to just make you kind of want to lose yourself he whips into this industrial part <laughs> <laughs> you're just like 
Oh, all right. I guess I guess we're not going to go over the uh, over the Lawrence Welk Falls here, and we're we're going to do something kind of cool. I enjoy to a certain degree that those sort of twists and turns that he takes us on with with these songs. Sometimes it's a little jarring, but sometimes that maybe is a good thing too. You know, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, on one hand, I'm thinking to myself. A lot of this stuff kind of reminds me of Detonation, I think it's called, and like Song of I, right? They're these songs that really begin in an abstract manner and they build. When I hear songs like this, I feel like, wow, that's kind of the same thing going on there, which is cool. But when I listen to a song like um, No Part of Me, I'm just like, oh, here it is. Just like all the other songs on these uh, these first two albums, right? Starts with this piano that goes on for like five minutes, and then it, you know, then it builds up into you know some kind of industrial guitar, and it's like it takes you all the way to the edge, and then it brings you back down into. It's almost like an unformulatic formula that continues to happen. So well, and 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 I do think that you know, based on my experience, I think that is a valid observation, certainly for these first two, in that you do get sort of a little, you know, you can get a, a repeat of, of themes and, and things like that. It's almost like when you when you go to an, an art exposition um, on, uh, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's a specific exhibit on a specific artist and a specific work that they did. And in addition to that, maybe they'll show you a lot of the pre-work that they would do to sort of practice for making the masterpiece. So you end up seeing like three different treatments of the same subject matter that aren't fully formed, but you can see how they maybe, if you amalgam them all together, you get, you know, the, the end piece. Mm, That is an excellent analogy, Joe. I love it. I love it. These, these are the, what did you say? Practice for the masterpiece. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It. It's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like what? It's like watching batting practice, basically. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hundred <laughs> percent. It's it's it looks like baseball, but it's not baseball. Yeah. It can be exhilarating, but after a couple minutes, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I've seen He's that. And, and it's funny. So then you go into postcard. My notes here say this is a bit light and maybe obvious compared to the rest of the album. You know, everything else, a lot of the rest of this album is so experimental. And, and then you get something, you know, that is sort of what you would expect. It's it's I don't know. It, it just sort of stands out. Yeah. And then it goes into Raider Prelude, which is just cool. It's it's two minutes of of sort of dark ambience that is just awesome as far as I'm concerned. And I, I love the way that the Raider prelude sort of obviously speaks to Raider two later on in the album. Mm. And, um, you know, cause there's, there's enough space that you kind of forget about the, the musical <laughs> themes until they, they come back and then you're like, Oh, that, that was cool. I like that. Yeah. I'm just laughing at the dog yeah. walking around. <laughs> Freaking buddy. I can picture buddy just cruising <laughs> across the floor. <laughs> He's got his thing. And, and then we go into Remainder the Black Dog. I think this is the 
complete expression of of Stephen Wilson's experimental phase here in these first two albums. This is maybe as close as he's going to get to the the full composition at this point. That's not to say that it's it's almost the masterpiece. It just has all of the elements in there. Some of them are out of control. Mm. <laughs> but but they're all there. <laughs> and and he's, you know, he's taking all of his building blocks and he's seeing, you know, do they fit together yes or no? And you know, it's 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 amazing because here again we start out with the with the piano that feels, you know, like something that Depeche Mode would have off uh, music for the masses. There is a song on the bonus tracks of music for the masses called Pimpf. That's P-I-M-P-F. Yes. That that features prominently in one of the haunted houses here in in Texas. So I can never hear that that song or that sort of piano tone and not think of a haunted house. So fits in wonderfully. We have more extreme dynamics here. And then you get into that section that goes in from a recorder to maybe a clarinet into some sort of thrash section, which could be a guitar or a saxophone. I have no idea what the hell's going on. Yeah. And and then it it crashes into this Steely Dan piano part. Hmm. And you're I'm left with my head spinning around going, what the hell just happened to me? <laughs> so the thing that I love about that middle section is that haunting piano line ends up trading places, right? The guitar is playing it for a little bit. The bass is kind of doing a variation of it um, coming out of all of that, that swirling craziness. It's, it's awesome. And then the Steely Dan, I mean, that's perfect, dude. And then it goes right back into thrashing and then into the piano again. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know if you noticed, but Steve Hackett apparently played on this track. No, how did I miss that? Oh my God, there he is. Yes. I missed a whole host of, of people on that. Sand Snowman's back, Mike Altrum yeah. again, Steve Hackett. I'm and I believe every member of Sick Men was on, was on this too. There you go. Yeah, Pat, Pat Mastellano. Yeah. Oh, so, so my, yeah. my apologies to all these other people, but I'll bet you anything, now that you say that, that that thrash part that I don't know what the hell instrument it is, I'll bet you that is Steve Hackett. Huh, that, interesting. That seemed like something Steve Hackett would do. This is a great track. I can hear like how this evolves into parts of Hand Cannot Erase. There are just elements to this that, that take me there. It's a cool track for sure. Yeah, it, it really, really is. Moves us on to uh, Belle du Jour. My note here says Sting did a Blackfield song. <laughs> and then we get to Index. Now, this is a song I have trouble with. I find this song to just, it's strange. I think the production is weird. The sounds feel a little off. Uh, there's just something about this track that, that doesn't work for me. I don't think it's quite right. The sounds are, are a little off, and I can't really explain it other than I've, every time I listen to it, it just it weirds me out a little bit. Yeah. It is a weird track. I mean, it, it, it starts quiet. It slowly builds. It never really gets to industrial or anything else that's uh, outrageous. 
um, and then it calms back down again. So just like every other song on this record, only he does this one in a four minutes and 49 seconds where most of the others take yeah. roughly six minutes or longer. I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. Hey, so just to uh, completely keep throwing in random facts about this record. So I, yeah. I just happened to have, I'd scrolled back to the uh, the wiki page when you mentioned Steve Hackett and I found all these other people I didn't put on my notes here. Mm. And, and there's a little note at the bottom of, of the page I'm looking at about the touring band for Grace ah. for Drowning. And I noticed that Aziz Ibrahim shows up mm. who manifested himself in I believe one of the Asia albums that I did in my solo series. Oh, wow. And he was he was of import because he plays with H natural. Ah wow. Or the H band or whatever. The H band. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah wow. Yeah. yeah, you're right on. Yeah. H band, Paul Weller. Yeah. Steven Wilson, Asia. There you go. So yeah, I just I I just noticed that and I thought oh, that's cool. I don't think I had looked at that either. And that's when uh, Marco Miniman joined the band. Yeah. And uh, Nick Beggs toured. Is is Guthrie who plays with him now? Guthrie played with him, I want to say, during The Raven Refused to Sing. Oh, uh, really? Although I, I may be corrected when we get to that album and we actually open up the wiki pages. And he played on Hand Cannot Erase and toured for half of Hand Cannot Erase. And then I think he got sick of playing progressive rock <laughs> him and marco miniman they're in a band called the aristocrats and they do whacked out jazz instrumental kind of heavy stuff and it's really awesome actually they went and did an album and toured back to grace for drowning so track one which is you know ironically deep into the album and my note here is repeating some themes here so you know we're, we're sort of recycling even in in the same album at this point. And I don't know that, you know, that's necessarily a good thing. But uh, then we get into Raider 2, which I just say, yes, please. The multi-instruments that we've got going on. I like the fact that it builds off the prelude. I'm always a big fan of if you have a cool musical theme of bringing it back in later on, um, which mm -hmm. is great. And then, honestly, the the last couple tracks that we have here you know, I I don't know that they really work that great for me. So we've got um, Like Dust I Have Cleared From My Eye, Home and Negative, and Fluid Tap. It's not that they're bad. Like Dust, the end is way too long. I think Home and Negative very much looks towards later Stephen Wilson. I'm just kind of over it at this point. And I, I hate to say that, but I mean, this is a long, this is an 80-minute album. I have to say that I may be looking at a different version of Grace for Drowning than you are. Grace for Drowning was originally, what, a double album, right? That's correct. I'm looking at Spotify, and I only have 12 tracks. So you have these other two tracks at the end after Like Dust I Have Cleared From My Eyes. I do indeed. I do not see those tracks. I don't see them on the track listing of the wikis unless maybe they're demos. So apparently on um, the deluxe edition only, there there's a third disc that has six extra tracks. Yes. So there's Home and Negative and Fluid Tap, which are the two that I have. And again, I bought this through iTunes. 
Interesting. Um, and so these were the 14 songs that I got. But this third disc also has the map, Raider Acceleration, Black Dog Throwbacks, and a demo version of Raider 2. Wow. So, there, I mean, yeah, that that's just really long. So that adds another yeah. 20 minutes on to the whole thing. Talking mm. about, you know, over, you know, 100 minutes. It's a lot of music. That's a lot of time. That's impressive, though. Yeah. Wherever Grace for Drowning ends, which it's kind of funny that the album seems to not know where it's going to end, much like some of the songs don't, <laughs> don't seem to know where they should end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I have been able to appreciate what maybe Stephen was trying to do here. And so I'm I'm willing to sort of go along with this and i have the the benefit of of foresight here because i know what the payoff is going to be on the next album i don't know if i was buying these records in real time and listening to them how i would have thought about this um would this have been the coolest thing i'd ever heard and i couldn't wait for the next one or would i've been totally perplexed and wondering what the hell he was doing i i can't really say being able to sort of see these albums maybe for for what they are and the value that they have with respect to some of the the, the truly great achievements that are, are yet to come from Steven as a solo artist, I can easily find things to appreciate here. Yeah, it's well said, Joe. It's hard to imagine what the context would be like otherwise. I have a, just a ton of respect for this guy and for, for these records but as we've said many times be looking forward to uh to what's to come yeah next episode as we've mentioned many 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 times we will come back and we will consider the masterpiece dare i say that is wow. the raven that refused to sing maybe it's not a masterpiece but it's fun as hell i think the greatest part about i mean i'll probably say this again the best part about the Raven that <laughs> refused to sing <laughs> is that the first track actually just fucking starts right balls out <laughs> like there's no build up, you know. After after a hundred minutes of of every song starting with a two minute build, <laughs> you know, it's just like fuck you. We're just starting with a giant bass riff coming right at you. I love it. It is amazing. And so I'll I'll set up the next episode for you, Paul. So the game that we have to play is how many prog or otherwise influences can you find in any one song wow so you've you've got to you've got to be able to call them out as they happen and you know there there are several songs where there may be a lot more than one <laughs> <laughs> all right well that gives me some uh something to do when i uh, when i listen to it next time other than just sit there and go oh. <laughs> Yeah, we, we want you to be fully engaged in this one. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. We've certainly enjoyed having this initial conversation regarding Stephen Wilson's solo works. And as we said in the episode, we look forward to your thoughts and your comments on these two albums to sort of augment our understanding of this. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, 
and Twitter. We are at ProgPala on each of those where you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to send us an email. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for download and subscription on both Google Play as well as iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they're calling it today. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. that oh i wonder how long we can talk about these albums and here we are an hour and a half in of course we are <laughs> i can fucking talk dude we can talk an hour and a half about anything too. <laughs>